Hi there, welcome to episode 8 of the Ross Trevina Project. Today's guest is a former political figure turned environmental business consultant who now hosts the Malin Baker Show on YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Malin Baker. So we've got Malin Baker here. Thanks for joining me. You've probably got one of the best intros uh, on YouTube. I love the the bass sound after you say change makers. If you're wearing headphones, it goes right through you. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of like... you awake. Yeah. It's kind of like if something uh, tragic's just happened in a film and it's just like... Poof. Uh, my words are often associated with tragedy. Oh, no. by my <laughs> I think your videos are more of a relief, actually. But <laughs> uh, oh, that's very good of you to say. Okay, so why don't we just start with a bit of a backstory of um, your career from where you started in politics to now with your YouTube channel? Crikey! Okay, but, um, sorry if that's too broad. In mind- <laughs> Well, no, bear, bearing in mind my, my uh, agedness, uh, this obviously is quite a long span. We'll try and shorten it a little bit. So I started what could laughably be called my uh, adult career, I suppose, in a plastic bag outside the main gate of a nuclear missile base uh, back in the 1980s when we were all worried that everything was going to get blown sky high. And that led me into campaigning type activities, which led me into being interested in the environment. Very quickly, being involved with environmental campaigning, you get I got fed up with the challenge of that sort of campaigning, which is that you're always against something. You're always saying no to something. And I thought, well, this is no good. Surely it's about building an alternative. So what, where do you go to to say yes to something? And in those days, I figured, well, maybe the answer to that was politics, because you have a manifesto, don't you, of the things you're going to do. So naturally, he looks at the various manifestos and thought, well, you you can either be a very, very small fish in in a big pond that could become the government, or you can be influential. And we... looks at uh, what was then the Green Party manifesto and thought, well, you know, you you could actually do some things here. This was just before they uh, scored 15% in the European elections at that point, at which point suddenly they were on headlines and everyone was taking notice of them. Uh, So I got involved with that. That was 1989, the European elections of 1989. European elections are the sort of things where people will vote for any old wacko um, because they have no idea what the European Parliament did anyway. So they had no fear that it would be run badly. Is it kind of like because it's over there instead of here, so we'll try something out? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So no longer, of course, but that was how it was then. So I got involved with Green Party. Within 18 months, I was a co-chair of the Green Party, which, being young and naive, thought that must be something to do with something I'd done right, Um, whereas, of course, it was actually a sign of a deeply dysfunctional organisation. 
and um, very quickly uh, discovered how interesting that can be. Just to give you one of the headlines, this was, of course, the time when one David Icke <laughs> was a prominent spokesperson for the Green Party. Uh, by all accounts, we had assumed that he was a as sensible a person as you can be if you're going to be a spokesperson for the Green Party. And I was in the Green Party office the day the journalist phoned up and said, did you know your leader, which he wasn't, but never mind, your leader has just gotten off a plane and announced that he's the son of God. Uh, how you deal with that from a PR point of view, it wasn't entirely clear to us at the time. I almost said, because I thought he was joking, I almost said, well, of course he is, didn't you know? But fortunately, <laughs> I didn't. We decided to take the approach of trying desperately to keep the party out of the resulting derision so we just sort of like bored for England and, and didn't comment and things. And that was successful in the short term. But at the end of the day, you couldn't hide the fact that he'd been this prominent spokesperson and we became by association a laughing stock. Anyway, that wasn't really the reason why ultimately the Greens proved that having had a little breakthrough, they were in no position to take any advantage of it. Like, And, and I don't particularly blame them for that any group that's so far on the periphery hasn't developed the maturity of operations, the maturity of thinking to be able to deal with sudden spotlights. And they didn't. And it became quickly obvious it was not a vehicle for change that was going to hold up. So I ended up moving. And, you know, there's a lot of story, backstory behind that, which is ancient history now, so of no interest to go into. I moved from there to uh, the next mainstream party uh, up, uh, which is the Liberal Democrats, became chair of the Green Liberal Democrats there. But eventually got fed up of party politics because it's so much about us versus them. It was, I'd gone onto the Federal Policy Committee, uh, which was, you know, fine. It was an influential place to be and got some things through and that influenced the political discussion. But ultimately, they were far more interested in what would discomfort the other side and it just seemed to me that, fine, you needed people who were going to do that. You needed people who were up for the tribalism of politics because you need good people doing that. But it wasn't really how I thought about the world. And I ended up moving from there to work with businesses on environmental issues. So this was back in the uh, mid-1990s. And I was in Yorkshire at the time, which you know, still had the vestiges of the, the steel industry and you know, quite a lot of manufacturing there. One of my earliest conversations was with the owner of a steel mill who said to me, in all honesty, he wasn't you know, joking around. In all honesty, he said to me, well, we don't have anything to do with the environment. We're just a steel mill. Right. OK. <laughs> so we had a discussion. And... The thing was, and I moved from there to an organization called Business in the Community, which was a collaboration between many of the biggest companies in the country and indeed in the world who were committed to social responsibility in some way, shape or form. And Business in the Community had the Prince of Wales as president, but don't hold that against them. And they worked with chief executives of the top companies to do what they could in all sorts of different ways, education, environment, uh, race and equal opportunities, all sorts of things. Many, many, many different points of focus. Too many, to be fair, but that was the organisation. And so I joined that and 
ended up doing a lot of work on this thing called corporate social responsibility. And companies are much more pragmatic, much more action oriented, much more feet on the ground. You know, they wanted to make a profit. They knew that in order to do that, they had to have the license of the societies where they operate. Yeah, the, the, the smart businesses had always invested in education because they saw an enlightened self-interest case. They now saw an enlightened self-interest case why in the future, if they were going to remain profitable, they mustn't be screwing up the environment so badly that then society turned against them and said, we're going to shut you down. And you don't have to think idealistically about it to see that case, which is why a pragmatist like me was able to thrive in that sort of space. Uh, I did that for 20 years, basically. That's the short version. And now I don't do any of that. (laughs) Now I make videos and I take that sort of non-tribalistic view of what's happening in politics, what's happening in campaigning, what's happening in the corporate sphere, try to make sense of it and give a commentary that then steps back from the tribalism and says, okay, look, you you can be tribalistic if you you wish, but because we've become so polarised it now generally interferes with our ability to make sense of the world because we filter things through an ideological lens so actively. So my aim now is to create videos that tries to present an analysis and a case for action beyond those filters. And it's it's tricky because YouTube and the various social media platforms are built to polarise their algorithms lead you further and further into whichever rabbit hole you've started off in. Sitting in the middle of that and trying to be a non-polarizer and, and, and try to have this sort of beyond the, the, the ideology approach, the, the algorithm doesn't quite know what to do with that. So um, so it's, it's, it's building slowly and there's a number of people who are very enthusiastic about it, which is great. It makes me feel like it's worth still doing. And that's what I'm that's the exercise that I'm on now. That's interesting. So you do feel that even though you saw tribalism in your earlier political days, you do feel like it's worse now? Yes. And I think think it's worse now because it's more widespread because of social media. Mm. So I've always lived within the tribes um, from that political era because my friends then were obviously deeply partisan by definition. And I found that difficult to cope with. And they found me difficult to cope with, to be fair, because the first thing I do if I'm part of a tribe is I start looking at what my own tribe is doing and saying, oh, I'm not so sure about that. (laughs) And that goes down like a right lead balloon, I can tell you. So that was why politics and I were never destined to get on particularly, really. Um, Businesses can equally be discomforted by that, although the best of them welcome challenge and dissent there's plenty that can't cope with it but the best of them do that because by being challenged you get exposure to different ideas and the smartest businesses knew how to listen to those ideas reject the ones that are off the wall but spot the ones that actually had a really good point and i've worked for bosses in the past who were absolutely comfortable with that and they embraced me as a as a sort of a gadfly which is when I've prospered and done well and then they moved on and and former FTSE 250 company person might move in and they're not quite so into that experience and that's when we decide okay time to move on 
that's a shame. Uh, what kind of solutions would you give companies uh, broadly in regards to uh, helping the environment? Depends on the company and the industry. Oh, okay. All of these things are very, very specific. Because there's so much diversity in businesses now, even the ones in the same sector look nothing alike mm. when you sort of look at what assets they've got and what things they produce and which market segment they're aiming at. If you're aiming at a premium market, you've got much more latitude because there's a higher price premium. You can build in quality and quality can include environmental responsibility. If you're a company like a Walmart or a Primark, then you have the challenge that you have massive scale, so you can have potentially massive impact. And you don't necessarily have a customer base that highly values the environment in, in, in a special way. You know, they're not a woke business audience. However, because you have a big impact, you really can't ignore the issues so you see some of the companies like Primark and Walmart now have actually done some quite far-reaching things and some quite brave things but they can't charge a premium for it and they can't expect the plaudits of their customers for it so it has to be done in a certain way that's going to make business sense and that gives them bigger challenges because if you if your whole business model is fast fashion, then you can't get away from the fact you want people to buy new clothes every season. Thank you very much. And of course, that has its own downsides in all of that. So these are problems that are difficult to solve. And there's lots of interesting companies that are working hard to solve them who will get no recognition from the extreme campaigners, the, the, the ones who you know, currently are gluing themselves to buildings and saying that we've got to get to zero carbon by tomorrow, preferably. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Uh, so I wanted to ask you uh, to sort of give a broader perspective on a few environmental uh, perceptions it. that uh, people might have, because it's, I know, I know some of the I don't know if they're facts or some of the suggestions that are coming out. So that do sound pretty scary. But for, uh, first, I just wanted to know why it is that um, uh, some humans feel the need to constantly think that the apocalypse is on the way. Have you <laughs> had any thoughts about that? Uh, a few. So there's two things here. One is there, there is a strand throughout human history of ap apocalyptic thinking. There is, a, there is a tendency within the species, if you will, to see things on the horizon in a very gloomy way. And that probably served us well when we were hunting and gathering and you know, split-second responses to threats could be the difference between life and death and all those sorts of things. I don't know exactly where it comes from, but you can point to a history. The danger is, of course, people point to that history and they say, and therefore it can never be true. And therefore, we can discount any suggestion of a apocalyptic scale risk, which is equally foolish, to be fair, because we have achieved a scale on the planet you know, with the, the billions that we have gained as a species in an incredibly short time scale. We are involved in an experiment as a scale at which we've never been before. And this is what provoked uh, about 50 years ago the likes of Kissinger to initiate the whole climate science focus because there was a realization that through history we'd had a highly variable climate we'd have the climate we'd have the um, 
mini ice age. We've had the medieval warm period. We've had a quite a variable climate. And that often had quite a negative impact on human civilizations, even though they were much smaller. And as we'd gotten bigger and we'd grown into every space, suddenly the realization was, well, actually now our very scale could potentially make us vulnerable to shocks that we've seen in the past. But recently we haven't. Recently we'd had a very stable period, but that wasn't typical of history. And it was only then latterly it started to say, well, actually the scale may even be changing the climate. It's not just about us being aware of what shocks are coming. We might actually be creating one of them. So there's all of that. The other part of it is then that there's a political element as well. So as our awareness of these various issues has arisen, we do have groups on the left who have traditionally been on the left and, and have been looking for campaigning elements of how their view of the world can gain ascendancy when really capitalism over the last 50 years pretty much beat all of the competitors hands down. And a number of them, uh, the, the Roger Hallams from Extinction Rebellion and some of the others, some of those around the Black Lives Matter organization in, in the US and, and elsewhere, had seized, seized on a number of these campaign issues as ways to build broader bases of support. And their way of doing that is to catastrophize them. And Extinction Rebellion has specifically followed a strategy which was to create an emotional reaction from people to talk in the most apocalyptic terms and to put in the ways of you know, the blood of our children, our children. You will die of old age, but your children will die of climate change and these sorts of things, which are not supported by the mainstream science. Um, are barely supported by even the outliers, to be fair. There's, there's a handful of outliers they can point at, and even those outliers don't necessarily talk in the terms that they talk about, with Roger Hallam going onto the BBC and saying six billion people are going to die uh, by, uh, by the uh, 2080s or something, which there is no grounds for whatsoever, but they see it as it's, 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 it's almost a cultish recruitment process because they see it as the thing that attracts the attention and they can be there and they can empathize with the people who are now desperately scared for their future and they draw them in to what is a very activist agenda because they want people to get arrested at least that's how it was roger hallam has now parted ways with extinction rebellion because once you bring a lot more people in who are just scared about the issue and they're not the political activist core then suddenly you get conflict. If, if you haven't recruited people into the mission as it really is, not just how it appears to be, then you're going to get conflict. And they have had that conflict. And, and that, that has led Hallam to go a separate way and to create his, his now extremist splinter group, uh, which is just an indicator of you know, the, the agenda they had was never quite the agenda that they owned up to. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, it's, but it's there in what they've been saying and how it's all been playing out. Okay, so do they not believe what they're saying, like the heads of those organisations? Or are you not sure? Good question. Um, I honestly, we talk about a small number of people, and I believe it's entirely possible for them to have talked their way into the hole. So they one thing leads to another and, and, and then they generalise it all in their heads and they get angrier about it and it leads them into a... You know, the, the more people believe in an extreme, 
you know, as we've seen from the actions of social media generally, the more likely they are to get deeper and deeper in. So I wouldn't say that it was a cynical ploy and they just didn't believe any of it. I'm sure they believed it. There's evidence they selected it as the issue that they thought they could get traction on. It doesn't mean to say that they didn't necessarily believe it. Uh, I, I, I try not to mind read people. No, yeah. You know, um, it, it, it's, it's the temptation always to ascribe ill intent to people and it leads you to misunderstand their genuine motives. You know, by and large, I think, you know, cock up rather than conspiracy, nine times out of ten. And everyone's a hero in their own movie. They think they're doing the right thing nine times out of ten. And it's very hard to tell the difference from afar. So I try not to ascribe ill intent to people unless I can, you know, can't avoid it. Yeah, I was going to ask that as well, because um, you had an interview with Roger. Is that his name? Yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, I, just I haven't actually got round to asking, so I was wondering if it came up in that. But I, I can sort of understand how the fear factor would play into them grain, gaining traction if people were scared that the world's going to end. But um, I don't quite understand their tactics uh, that just seem to irritate people. Uh, do you? What's your most charitable interpretation of how they think that's going to work? <laughs> So the original tactics, as ascribed by Roger, and when I interviewed him, you know, I gently put to him that the logic of his position led to authoritarianism, um, which is a heck of a conversation to have with someone. <laughs> and, and and nothing's changed with with view to his his his. But you see, he hasn't worked it out. He hasn't worked out how this plays out in the future. I don't think. Um, it, this isn't like there's a grand secret plan. and But the logic of where you go, you scare people that they're going to die relatively soon or their children are going to die relatively soon. The logic of that takes you. Oh, and you say, and we need to overthrow the government. And, you know, they say that you know, we, we're then going to have citizens' assemblies and, and that will come up with the answers magically. Well, of course, nothing happens magically. So you then think, well, what really is going to happen? And of course, what's really going to happen is that um, the whole purpose of overthrowing the government is that you impose a faster route onto what you think has to happen than democratic government will actually allow. That's where the logic takes you. And there's an argument for it. You know, I lost a debate some years ago uh, where the subject of the debate was we need a green authoritarian approach. I was opposing this and I lost and this was to a corporate responsibility audience. I thought I would have them no problem at all. And I, and I lost that. So there is an instinct in people who say, if we believe this is really bad, then we might embrace the really extreme solution, which is why I don't underestimate the appeal of these you know, what seem to be extreme groups. And people say, why are you going on about them? You know, we're just extreme outliers. I think, yeah, don't underestimate the possibility that when something bad happens out there, because we, we will see some little shocks as we go along. When one of those comes along, do not underestimate the possibility that people will suddenly say, oh, well, something needs to be done. This is something, therefore, this must be done. Now, with, with where Roger is on this generally, I think his, 
his original approach came from the history of nonviolent direct action, the Gandhiism, and, and some other writings that suggested to him, erroneously in my view, that if you could get three and a half percent of the population coming out onto the streets, then revolution would happen. You know, this was a tipping point moment if you could get to this. And he didn't notice that the examples where this had actually been successful in the past were generally where you had majority populations who were reacting against an authoritarian dictatorship rule or a colonial government you know, from, from an outside power like the British in India. That's a different dynamic to addressing a complex mutual problem within a democracy. That's just not the same dynamic at all. So for, for that reason, it was never going to work for him. And secondly, for that reason, actually overthrowing the government wasn't the actual sensible answer because we have a complex mutual problem. There are lots of things that we need to do, some of them to do with innovation and new technologies. Some of them are to do with changes in certain decisions and, and how we make them and so on. But all of them, you need to take people along with you. You know, you can't impose on a majority population through a democracy, something that they really will not accept. And so therefore having a campaign approach that is designed to irritate everybody, except for your most loyal supporters is highly counterproductive. And you can point at Gandhi all you like, but that wasn't what Gandhi did. Gandhi got the broader base of Indians to make their own salt illegally, and, and that annoyed nobody except for the British Empire. You know, he got Indians to spin their own cloth uh, and to boycott English-made cloth. That was about building their own self-worth, self their own self-image, and being self-reliant. He wasn't leading people against themselves, you know, <laughs> to to stop Indians from going to work. This kind of stuff. So to miss that dynamic mm, and to come up with what they came up with was 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 illiterate from a campaign perspective, unfortunately, which is why it was doomed to failure. Now it doesn't mean to say you couldn't lead a successful campaign; you just have to be structured very differently and with with well spelled out campaign goals because again because roger hallam was kind of doing this a little bit surreptitiously the three campaign goals they came up with were designed to be basically unachievable you know zero carbon by 2025 no government even if they wanted to would ever be able to achieve that but of course they didn't want them to be achieved by the existing government they wanted the excuse to overthrow the government so your children are going to die here's what you have to do in order to save them unproven by any stretch of the imagination but nevertheless that's their story and therefore the government doesn't do this therefore we have to overthrow the government that was the logic of the position and it would be a quiet overthrowing because we say we're going to do citizens assemblies but of course, they had failure built in. So what happens when they don't deliver the genius ideas that nobody else has put forward yet? Well, then, of course, you have to take the next step afterwards. But there you go. Now, of course, that would never have worked anyway, because people aren't going to overthrow the government. They actually they accept and support democracy. You know, they will get extremely uppity if they have a referendum and you look like you're not going to do it. But what then happens is they'll then vote the people in with a bigger majority who say that they will do what the referendum said. 
people do support the democratic process for better or for worse. You know, so if you really want to make changes, you've got to think, how do you make changes within the system as it is? You know, not that systems can't evolve and change, but you know, you've got to work with people the way they are, not the way you'd like them to be. Mm. You can overturn a system if a system goes against people the way they are. You know, eventually they'll get fed up and they'll overturn it, as, as many um, authoritarians have found to their cost in history. It could take a long time, but it eventually gets there. But ultimately, you can't impose a solution as a minority of the elite. You can't impose a solution on a wider mass of people if they're not going to put up with it. That's interesting. Um, So let's tackle some of the claims. Uh, Go on. Humans will go extinct in the next nine to 12 years. I don't know if that's the exact claim, but it's a a close (laughs) estimation of what has been said. Uh, Why is that wrong? Well, <laughs> well, where where would you begin? I mean, of the heart, it's a proposition that has no evidence backing it up. So ultimately, you can't prove a negative. There is no reason to think we ever could go extinct within nine to 12 years. The more serious apocalyptic people would at least put it back towards the end of the century. But again, that's not supported by the mainstream science. You have to, and to be honest, even the outliers don't claim for human extinction. And when Extinction Rebellion started, they said they weren't claiming for human extinction. In fact, even Roger Hallam wasn't claiming for total extinction. He went on to BBC Hard Talk and he said six billion people will die. (laughs) And he was basing that on uh, somebody who was at the Potsdam uh, Potsdam Centre, which is one of the the outlier groups that are more apocalyptic than, than the others amongst the scientific community. And they had been quoted by The Guardian as saying that they couldn't see a future sort of by the end of the century that could support more than exactly how it was worded was slightly obscure. But the way it was read in The Guardian was that it couldn't support more than half a billion. You know, it couldn't support more than a billion or even half that was how it came across. And that was what Roger Hallam had read. And that was what he was quoting when he said that. However, what transpired after the event was even with that outlier, The Guardian misquoted them, which The Guardian is famous for doing. (laughs) And actually, he hadn't meant that at all. He'd meant half of what we've got now, which would still be pretty extreme. So, you know, this would still be three billion people dying by implication, which would be bad enough. Uh, But Roger Hallam sort of read it wrong. And so he was quoting, oh, well, six billion are going to die, which even then wasn't human extinction, although, frankly... You know, six billion people died, we wouldn't be saying, well, technically it's not extinction, so we're fine. We'd be saying, oh my goodness. However, the Potsdam sort of side depends on all sorts of uh, tipping points that the majority of mainstream scientists do not believe to be as serious a threat as uh, those people think. Okay. And so whilst being respectful of the potential that there are things that you know, we don't see coming. You, know, you should never discount the possibility of things that we don't see on the horizon that can have major scale. We always need to look with an open mind and to be alive respectfully and, and therefore say, yes, we do need to take action on these. It's a serious issue. For people who say, oh, those people are wrong, therefore we can just do whatever the heck we like. It's kind of you know, wishful thinking on, on that side. To, to be fair, um, 
you have to take the the issue seriously when we've grown to the sort of scale that we have now. And we do have a certain fragility in the systems that are supporting that huge weight of humanity now. Nevertheless, you know, those systems do show a degree of resilience in the face of the sorts of predictable shocks that we see. Scientists are not talking in terms of human extinction or anything like it. They're saying, yes, on the trajectory that we're currently on, we're going to have some challenges that we're going to need to overcome. There's going to be some adaptation we're going to need to deal with. It's by no means to be dismissed as a trivial matter. Some might describe it as catastrophic. The question is, what does that word really mean when you unpick it? And the danger is some people use the term very loosely, and that feeds the catastrophists in their doomsday scenarios. Okay, uh, let's move on to the fear that bees are going to go extinct uh, and by <laughs> proxy humans will as well. Yes. This was one of the earliest ones where when I looked at it, I realised that... Because well, when I started this video channel and I started doing some of these science-focused videos where I looked into what does the research say about certain issues. My expectation then was that all I would ever do was I'd come across an interesting grey area issue, I'd look at what the research says, it would have the answer and then I would relay the answer. And this was the first issue where I realised that it's actually not as simple as that, Malin. Uh, and you get research that is sometimes badly conceived um, and then gets mangled in the telling as well. And the insect apocalypse was the area where I've, I first really saw this in action and how this can work, because we saw all sorts of stories about the insect apocalypse that was coming up. And then I saw there were some entomologists who were talking about this research and why it was deeply flawed, because actually the, the people who had done the, the research this was based on had done a search on... Uh, a database of academic research and they had searched on species decline and the thing was that therefore the only things they picked up were papers that dealt with declining populations they didn't do a search for anything that was neutral they didn't do a search for anything that was increasing and so therefore they came up with a bunch of research that was all about decline and what they then did was they did a a, a, a paper that summarized this that basically said insect species are declining across the world by 30 to 50 percent blah, blah 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 this then got picked up by newspapers who turned it into the insect apocalypse headlines but of course that wasn't the story because their research methodology had been flawed and they only picked up things that supported the headline that was then told and entomologists were pointing out that actually the real problem with insect species was that we just don't know we have a lot of research in the UK. We have a lot of research in Germany. We have uh, quite a bit of research in the United States. And there were certainly a number of species there that were showing causes for concern. There were a number of species there that weren't showing causes for concern. And then we had huge gaps, huge gaps across Asia and Africa. And, you know, across the whole of Asia, I think that, that survey that had been done had two species, both of them of bumblebees. Um, yeah, and, and they were taking the whole entirety of, of insect kind, and, and that was all you got from Asia. And obviously, that doesn't tell you anything. Mm. So that, that told you initially that the methodology of, of this research could be suspect. When it came to bees overall, the, the issue with bees was that 
there's two types of bees. One is that there are bees that are run by professional beekeepers. Um, they provide bee, bees pollination services to commercial growers. Uh, and there had been concerns that those bees were dying out because of um, hive die-off and varroa mites and you know what they thought might be the impact of uh, neonicotinoid insecticides. But by and large, when you looked into that more carefully, this wasn't a problem. The beekeepers were managing their hives well. There were certain problems. There had always been certain problems. There had been a slightly higher impact of those problems recently, but they could manage those. You know, there are ways of introducing new queens and building up hive strength, and by and large, they were being managed. And there was no danger of the die-off of honeybees that were being managed by, by the commercial hives. The second one then, and, and that was, you know, campaigners have been pointing at that for ages, and then they started to realise that actually, no, that wasn't going to be a problem. So they shifted their focus to the wild bees. And you see this a lot. Campaigners will jump onto an issue. They will dive into a very surface level of understanding on the issue. They will point at their preferred villain, which in this case was chemical fertilizer, uh, insecticides, and, and then campaign on it. And then if evidence comes up, that's actually not the problem. They will shift focus. But the aim is, you know, the aim often stays the same. So they shifted focus to wild bees. But the, the, the finger of blame at the insecticides remained the same. And the truth was always that if you looked more deeply into the research on this, varroa mites were much more the cause of problems amongst these insect populations. And in areas such as Australia and New Zealand, where they used these insecticides, but they did not have varroa mites, you did not see the same sort of problems. So jumping to conclusions, and you shouldn't jump to any conclusions. I mean, it could still be something else. It's not that the insecticides cannot have a negative impact, but the argument that said, you know, all of these problems we're seeing are to do with these insecticides was jumping to a conclusion. And it wasn't supported by an environment where you saw the absence of the mites uh, and the use of the insecticides and no problems. So it's just one of those examples, again, of why you have to look deeper than just the campaigners. And, and ultimately, there are certain species of bees and particularly bumblebees that are declining for sure. There are many species of bees and many of the ones that are involved with the widest pollination activity are not showing the same degrees of decline. So always you've got to not be complacent because we are seeing declines and they can have an impact. But we've got to look deeper into the data with an open mind and say, what's the data really telling us? Because you can't solve a problem if you're going to misdiagnose the problem and go after something that suits you as a campaign group. But it's actually the wrong problem. Uh, that's interesting. What uh, do you know? What percent of the bee population actually is the one <clears throat> that cross pollinates plants? Uh, off the top of my head, no, because it was quite a while ago since I did that video. Oh, I think okay. those those stats are in the video, um, but it is. I mean, it is by far the, the majority of bee species, as far as we know, because there's a lot more we don't know than we do know. The majority of the bee species, as far as we know their uh, rise and decline comes down to habitat, not down to um, those other factors. Habitat is the story when it comes to insect decline and to species decline generally. 
there's very little evidence that climate change is having an impact on species decline at the moment, which isn't to say it's not expected to. It is expected to, but we're not seeing it at the moment. There is the evidence that it's more habitat related. And even those species of bees where there have been declines in relation to um, pollination of crops, in certain field trials where they re-established boundaries of more diverse uh, uh, flowers and uh, uh, pollinating attractive uh, wild flowers and so on, you saw a return of those species. So it's not something that is an inevitable decline. If you address the habitat issue, then you see a lot of these species responding positively, which is a good sign. Still not grounds for complacency. You know, don't get me wrong. You, you, you do get groups of people on one side of this whole debate who will just say, there's absolutely nothing to see here, no problems whatsoever. Keep doing everything we're doing and there's going to be no consequences whatsoever. You mustn't mistake you know, looking at the data genuinely to see what are the real problems for that attitude. Complacency is very rarely what the data suggests you should be doing. Do you know if there's any research into a way that um, if for some reason that all the bees did die out, that there could be sort of like a way it could be done manually through robotics or the pollination of plants? Certain people have been looking into what a fallback would be because there had been enough discussion about the potential for the decline of pollinators that people started to take it seriously. And, and you know, there are certain parts of the world where it is a, a local problem, for sure. Um, so people have been talking about, well, can, can you create mini drone armies that do similar sorts of things? Uh, can you know in certain areas can you get human beings doing similar things it depends on the nature of the crops as to whether the scale of that is achievable or not i think one shouldn't underestimate the scale of the challenge that would represent you know companies have started to look at could we do this another way because we might have to Um, People have started to ask the question and look at potential solutions. But the scale of what you would have to do if all pollinators actually did die out would be immense. There is no easy answer. It just says, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll just get Elon Musk onto the task. (laughs) Problem solved. Yeah. No, it's not going to be that easy for sure. Uh, we have every incentive to look after our pollinator populations for as long as we possibly can. Absolutely. Uh, how worried should we be about the ice caps melting and the resulting sea levels and how they are connected? I think we uh, are moderately concerned as a medium to long term issue, which is which is absolutely right. So the thing about the, the ice caps melting is there's 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 two aspects of this the mainstream is about yes these things are melting and there's a slightly reinforcing effect with the the melting of the sea ice which doesn't raise sea levels at all but it does remove the very highly reflective surface that reflects a lot of the sun's radiation back into uh, back into space when that goes and it's replaced by dark water then more heat gets absorbed and that's got a feedback effect so that so you know, something you prefer to avoid if possible. We won't avoid all of that. Um, but of course, that doesn't raise the sea level. But uh, the melting glaciers and the melting, the melting uh, land ice that then goes into the sea does. Uh, 
we expect that over the course of the next 50 to 80 years, according to the IPCC mainstream science, I'm not a scientist, I'm only quoting what the reports say, um, is that you're looking at an, an average sea level rise of about two feet over that period of time. And you shouldn't just think that just means the water just gently laps up a millimetre more per every 10 years, because as it does grow up, then of course you get, what you do get is you get storm surges when you get bad weather. And, and what happens is that you will get floods and consequences that go well beyond a little bit of a, a rise in certain local locations when, when, when there's particular bad weather. And so that will have some consequences to people as we get bad weather consequences now and as we have through history. So what we will get is that over time we will adapt our locations, we will strengthen flood defences. We, you know, I mean, the Netherlands has built an alternative, you know, as, as they have, as the sea levels have, have, have increased relative to their land mass, they have adapted and managed that situation. So we will end up doing that in many places across the world. The worry, of course, is big cities where you've got huge dense density of populations close to the water in poorer areas uh, where that sort of adaptation is going to be uh, more of a, a challenge. But those are challenges that we can overcome. You know, there will be costs and there will be downsides. But, you know, there's people who paint apocalyptic visions of the idea that, you know, the human race is going to stay exactly the way that it is. Nobody's going to adapt to anything. And suddenly one day we're going to look around and say, oh, bugger me, there's all this water around my ankles. Yeah, you know, obviously that's, that's just stupid. That's just, you know, a ridiculous vision of how this plays out. Which isn't to say that we don't have more serious problems further down the line as... The, the real base of ice melts, you know, the, the, the quantity of ice that's tied up in the Antarctic and, and the deeper levels of, of the Arctic are significant and, and would lead to greater adaptation needs further into the future. But the extreme campaigners will make you think this is all going to be a cascading tipping point and this is all going to happen very quickly. Nobody thinks that that is really true. And the melting of the Antarctic ice, if that is going to be a continuing process that goes on unabated, is going to be happening over hundreds uh, and, and indeed you know, more than a thousand of years. Uh, and something that we will have to adapt to as a species over that long term as well. There's no reason to think that it isn't going to have consequences that will be things that we will have to adapt to. But equally, there's no reason to go running around flapping your arms about in a panic yeah, I don't mean to understate the nature of the problem by saying that. It's just the extreme version that some of the campaigners putting forward is so extreme. Yeah, uh, do you uh, do you know how much we are supposedly speeding it up, according to the scientists, compared to what it would be anyway with the natural um, heat changes among the planet? Well, I don't know because who knows what those natural heat changes. We're going to be, we're aware of you know, we, we we've had variable weather, we've had variable climate all the way through history. So in the you know in the the, the last hundred and fifty years since the industrial revolution started, you can discount the first hundred years of that as having received much input from us because you know the way we scaled as climate skeptics point to and say oh these people used to say that we were going to have an ice age and now they say it's all going to be uh, you know global warming and what are they going to be saying tomorrow well you know 
actually that followed the natural variability that we were seeing then. But since the 1970s, then the warming impact of the additional CO2 that's been added has started to rise above the, the natural variability so that we now see the signal over noise. And you look at you know, what we've seen since then and it's clearly divergent from the sorts of variability that we've seen through history. But we don't know what would have happened since 1970 had there been no human contribution to carbon dioxide levels. I mean, who knows? Maybe the colder drift would have continued. Maybe we would have had another warm spell. In the absence of, of the accurate knowledge of how the climate works without human intervention, then that's impossible to tell. And at the moment, all we can do is model that with computer models. And the computer models we use now are highly sophisticated, but what they are modeling is so immensely complex and particularly when you look at the variability that you get from clouds and the impact that clouds have on climate, modelling cloud behaviour, which is why you can't get weather forecasts more than seven days in advance, and even then they're percentage-based, there's a 30% chance there'll be rain, or there's a 70% chance there'll be, be rain, because of the, the enormous chaotic diversity that there is in those microsystems. Modelling that... Um, is something that is beyond the computer power that we have and maybe always will be. What you can do is you can get the headlines because as um, you know, we, we know the amount of sun's energy that comes into the system. We know the impedance on the energy that's leaving the system and therefore the overall increase of heat. It's just basic physics that, you know, eventually the Earth as a what's called a black body that radiates out as well as absorbing in. It has to balance. What's coming in has to be balanced by what's going out. And at the moment, the energy is rising because the greenhouse gases are stopping some of the energy from leaving the system uh, you know, or slowing it down from leaving the system. So... We know, you know, we can see the bigger picture of how that then changes the average temperatures over a given period of time. What we can't do is understand what natural variability would have been and exactly how that plays out in all the many subsystems. So sorry, that's a very sort of detailed, long-winded kind of way of saying we don't know, Gov. Yeah. Um, but that's why, you know, we have computer modelling that gives us a general idea of the sorts of things we're going to do. But there's lots of different models and the details differ between them, which is why some people say they're all junk and they're wrong to do that. Because by and large, if you take the aggregate of them, they are tracking broadly what we're seeing. You know, our ability not to have a detailed blow by blow account of exactly what the future is going to look like uh, doesn't discredit the principle of what they're modeling and the changes that they're tracking. But it does mean we don't really know for sure exactly what the natural variability would have been in the absence of, of our influence on it. Um, yeah, and, and maybe we will know that better in the future, but we certainly don't at the moment. Okay, um, I often hear a, a statistic that says uh, that food, manufacture, uh, food manufacturers waste uh was it one third of the food we produce or something i i can't remember the exact statistic do you know what i'm talking about and how accurate is that yes we we as a species waste a third of all our food that's it yeah um, and and it varies depending where you are as to where it gets wasted so in the industrialized world 
it tends to be wasted by consumers. We we buy more than we need and we throw a lot more of it than we think we throw out. And in the underdeveloped world, if you can call it that, the same amount tends to get wasted, but it usually gets wasted before it reaches the consumer. It gets wasted because there's no um, transport infrastructures that are robust uh, refrigeration services to keep things in good states and so on. So there's a lot of wastage from production before it actually gets. And the consumers waste very little because if you're poor, you don't waste food. Simple as that. So, yeah, this is a systems failure that we share, but which happens in different places. Okay, that's interesting. Um, uh, We're almost up to the hour. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, I just had one question about you mentioned in one of your videos about a project you did in Lebanon, uh, which is very sad now uh, because of the circumstances of the explosion that happened recently. Uh, I just want to know more about the project you did um and also what the current theories are about the explosion so the work that i did was with an organization called csr lebanon csr corporate social responsibility so drawing from my days working with businesses and the aim of csr lebanon because what you had in lebanon was you know desperately poor political setup, very delicate balance between the various factions, history of civil war, obviously. And yet you did have an emerging business community. You had a thriving centre in terms of Beirut in many ways, but with all sorts of social problems and largely ones of governance because the people in government, by and large, were getting extremely rich and there was waste in the streets. You know, there were all sorts of government services were not being delivered and there was routine corruption and incompetence. So there's deep frustration with that. CSR Lebanon was trying to marshal the business community to make their contribution, to support communities, to um, support uh, environmental Um, progress because where you get corruption and incompetence you usually get pollution and waste in places where it shouldn't be and so on so it was a very very good organization i thought trying to achieve something and and the guy who runs it Khaled, a fantastic pioneer boundless energy had, had brought in the governor of the bank of lebanon to be one of his key supporters had recognition amongst some of the government ministers and a lot of the key business leaders so he was doing a great job of trying to bring people together in a really pretty ropey situation and i just had huge admiration for what he was trying to do and how difficult it was so i'm very happy to support well, I've been over there a couple of times speaking at various conferences and having meetings with some of the business leaders there. And they'd reached their 10th year anniversary. And they wanted to, first of all, celebrate that. But also they wanted me to come in and do a video with them on that, where really the purpose of that was to lay down the challenge for the next 10 years and to try and put the challenge to their business supporters of how they needed to step up this action and, and what they could learn from where it had been done elsewhere and, and had worked well. So I was making that video and as part of that I'd interviewed a whole bunch of the business leaders that were in their orbit um, and, and the government of Lebanon and all these people shot all this footage. Um, it was it was a really interesting exercise. It had this video primed and ready to go. And then 
unfortunately, it just all went to hell in a handbasket. So first of all, there was a, a economic crisis there as the government plates that had all been spinning on corruption started to fall off. And um, the enormous debt that the government had became unsustainable and the uh, currency collapsed and the government forbade anyone from exporting dollars so I wasn't going to get paid but you know that was the least of it because basically any assets that anybody held there pretty much became worthless if not overnight certainly very very quickly and then you had protests in the streets unsurprisingly and then that all looked as though that might signal some political change and it was all very delicately balanced and then COVID-19 comes along and there's suddenly a pandemic that everyone's having to focus on and so that's hitting them hard and then of course this happened and we know what this is and I've been doing I, I'm about to release another video on this uh, probably next week now I've been looking more and more into what we know about how this happened and again, keeping an open mind always, because there's lots of people diving in and they've got a theory or they've got a side that they're supporting, you know, and, and so they gather the things that support their theory and that's what they release. And I try very hard not to do that and look at all the information out there and keep an open mind. However, all of that has trended very solidly in, in a direction, which is that this, the ammonium nitrate that was gathered at the port um, was highly likely to have either been gathered there by Hezbollah or at least had been seized by Hezbollah uh, in an opportunistic way. And there's lots of evidence to suggest maybe it was arranged to be there in the first place by then. You look at all the shadow companies and all the, the chain that led it to that place. I'll be going into the detail of that. Um, Nevertheless, uh, so because so, Hezbollah has a, a modus operandi that uses ammonium nitrate a lot. They had some stockpiled in um, Cyprus and somebody was sent to jail for, for, for that Hezbollah agent. They, uh, the UK government uncovered a, a stash here of Hezbollah uh, ammonium nitrate. They had the same in Germany. So, you know, they have a track record of using this exact material. And this material was indeed explosives grade. It can either be agricultural grade or explosive grade. It was explosives grade. And it was, you know, in a place in the port where generally you would expect you did not have long-term storage because it was close to the water. And a lot of people, um, you know, would say that that was prime area where you have goods coming in and going out you don't put long storage there you you have things close to the water for re receiving goods and you move your long-term storage much further back so there was lots of clues that Hezbollah were actually in charge of that area and that this was their storage and this was kind of compounded that when the explosion happened within the hour of it happening the very first statement that identified what this was came from Hezbollah. And so, you know, you immediately ask the question, well, hang on a moment. If these had just been stuck there and kind of forgotten about, how would you be so quick about it? And, and why would they be so quick about it? Mm. And of course, what they were doing was that they had already established a, a paper trail to explain why this stuff was there. 
in the past so that they had plausible deniability. And they were very well aware that it was there because it was a stash that they were dipping into or it had been replenished and moved around many times since. Who knows exactly how it worked? But nevertheless, they very quickly were putting forward their cover story too quickly, too conveniently. Now, whether that's true or not doesn't really matter because the majority of Lebanese who are not of the faction that is Hezbollah have basically concluded that that is the case. And so how things are unfolding there now are concluding because the population blame the government for rooting corruption uh, and incompetence and the system for creating that. And so the fact the government has has now resigned won't matter if the same system is going to appoint the replacement and also you know, direct anger at Hezbollah for having stored this there. How that plays out is a really tricky question because we achieved this government as a delicate balance after some pretty brutal, bloody uh, civil war. The danger is that this is overpinning that balance and the factionalism, the sectionalism comes to the fore again. And this doesn't end happily by finding a shining white knight to become the new government. This ends up with, with several steps back into something much worse for a period of time before we can get to a conclusion. Let's hope that's not how it plays out. But that obviously is the fear um, and in many ways now that becomes more important than the mere historical oddity of how did we get here. I mean, we have to know we, we, we're not going to get a way forward based on a lie, based on propaganda, but it's not going to take us to the solution. And that's the real worry. That's all horrible. Okay, well, thanks so much for joining. Yeah, sorry, sorry about it. You could ask me a question I've asked to finish with. This is where you go. I wanted to the, squeeze the, it in. The, the, the plus side is this. The plus side is this. You know, there's been video coming out of Beirut over the last few days of, of civilians everywhere coming together, cleaning up, sorting out in, in this sort of massive way. They're saying, okay, the government going to this, we're not going to look to them. And, and they have been coming together and they have been doing the most extraordinary things. As, as people trying to build back from this. And if there's any sign from hope, the way that they've done that, particularly a lot of the young Lebanese have done that, um, maybe there's something emerging in, in, a, in a common response to this that will actually make for a much more optimistic outlook than that gloomy thing suggests is possible. Oh, that's good then. I'm glad to hear that. Oh, well, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your videos. It's extremely nuanced. You're probably one of the most nuanced people I've seen on YouTube. Um, yeah, keep up the good work. Thanks so much. It's been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for listening and thank you to Malin for joining me. If you have enjoyed this discussion and would like to know more on the topics covered, check out The Malin Baker Show on YouTube or visit his website www.malinbaker.net. That's all for now. Bye.